now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode six of the DNA season, Just Science interviews Leslie Park and Jamie Haas of Signature Science, a private DNA laboratory based in Austin, Texas, about increasing workflow efficiency in their lab. From 20 cases a month to thousands of cases per year, Signature Science has shown significant growth in their lab's capacity. By introducing automation and eliminating unnecessary steps in the DNA analysis process, Park and Haas have proven that there are always ways to improve the efficiency of a forensic laboratory. Listen along as they discuss the benefits of eliminating serological testing and the impact that automation has had on their lab in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Hello and welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Today we are at the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors Meeting in St. Louis, Missouri in May of 2019. And we're visited today by two uh, folks with Signature Science, and we're going to talk about what Signature Science is in a moment, who have done some work in increasing sexual assault kit workflow efficiency through automation and basically some smart ways in which to deploy equipment and people to attain uh, efficiency in DNA processing. The first guest today is Leslie Park. Leslie is the director of Signature Science and the uh, principal author on a paper that uh, they are giving tomorrow. Your presentation is actually tomorrow at the conference and uh, was the quality assurance manager of Signature Science before becoming the director in 2012. She is a certified PMP, which I very much appreciate, project management professional, through the Project Management Institute, and a certified quality auditor with the American Society of Quality, and a certified scrum master, and is a principal scientist at Signature Science. She is joined by Jamie Haas, who is a forensic DNA analyst with Signature Science, and is the uh, backup technical leader who supports and advances the technical progress and upgrades within the laboratory, having been involved in every validation effort since they became accredited, and is a staff, staff supervisor over the forensic analysts. Welcome, Leslie, and welcome, Jamie. Thank, Thank you. you. And I should correct you. Uh, Jamie is actually our technical leader now. Fantastic. Yeah, as of May 1st. Thank you very much. That's excellent. That's excellent. I drug her kicking and screaming. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> That's fine. It's a challenge to take on those kinds of roles. It is a big responsibility. Yeah. We have a great team, though, so I'm, I'm happy to do it. So, Leslie, can you give a kind of some background about Signature Science and what it is that you all do? We were actually born out of a, a what was then called Radian or URS, and a core group of us who were became the founders and initial employees of Signature Science were in a division that became divested, and we became our own company. And we really focused on the Saberni, the Kim Bio Radnuke explosives work in the intelligence community, and then. Born out of that was, uh, you know, the biological sciences was a big part of it. Initially, it was just a bio-threat agent-related uh, activities that we were doing for the government. And then the human DNA became a big deal, and everybody's interested in it, and the government's really interested in it. And uh, being a good government contractor, if the government is interested in it, we are too. Sure. So uh, we, we became uh, in the human DNA forensic world in around 2011, and... Uh, 
doing a, a GOCO, a government-owned contractor-operated uh, operation based out of Charlottesville, Virginia. And then two years later, the forensic DNA practice in Austin became accredited, and the rest is history. So are you all based out of Charlottesville or Austin? We are based out of Austin, okay, okay. which is our headquarters. And so what is your all's role with respect to what you do in human DNA work? Are you all doing a lot of reference samples? Or are you doing casework? Are you doing both? Uh, generally speaking, how do uh, laboratories use your services? We do the just the outsourcing forensic casework, so references, evidentiary samples, testimonies, the, the, the typical stuff that a casework lab would do. So in some sense, from a purely technical perspective, you're not that different from a public crime laboratory that is trying to process DNA casework materials. What kind of throughput is Signature Science doing each year, you think? Uh, we have the capacity to do thousands of cases now. We started out doing 20 cases a month, and that was even that was painful. But that was early going. We had, you know, two analysts. It was <laughs> That was painful. So now mm -hmm. we're up to thousands a year. We've, we've come a long way in a fairly short period of time. Are you all able to anticipate, I should say, what your case workload is going to be from week to week or month to month? Do you have a lot of surge coming in depending upon how your contracting is or how predictable is your work? Uh, that's a good question. The answer is it depends. There are some contracts that we have that are, that are predictable and we, we know how many that we're going to get. We know when we're going to get them. There are some that definitely have some seasonal effects based on the crime rate, which is oddly tied to how good the weather is in that area. The nicer the weather, the more inclined people are to go out and commit crimes, apparently. Yeah, I mean, who, who, who wants to do a mugging when it's all rainy out? Excellent point. Mm -hmm. I see you could hurt yourself. I mean, there's all sorts of things that could go south. Sure. Yeah. And, and then we have other clients that are just very sporadic. We have no idea when they're coming in, and often there are quick turnaround times. So one of the issues then here is, from your all's perspective, obviously you're in the private sector, just like in the public sector. I mean, money counts, time counts, staffing counts. Right. And you've also grown reasonably fast, like many DNA labs have had to do over the last uh, several years. Tell me a little bit in terms of background. Signature Science is a great company, but what we're actually talking about here is some lessons learned that can be brought forward by any public or private crime laboratory that's doing work in DNA analysis. So as you all grew, obviously the issues of efficiency and throughput became more, you know, important to you so that you could be able to handle the, in, the you know, the incoming casework that you were getting. Right. Uh, tell, tell me about kind of that perspective in terms of how you all were viewing all that and where it came from for you all to do some of the work that you're reporting on now. Well, I, I want to start by just saying that we didn't do anything novel. We didn't create any magical black box to do something novel. What we did was we looked at our factors of production and figured out what we could do to affect that in a positive way that wasn't going to break the bank. In a private lab, margins are everything. So the more efficient we work, the better our margins are, and we get to keep our jobs, and we become accustomed to those. So that's a good thing. Yeah, and I think it was important when we were thinking about ways to improve efficiency. It was kind of like we just reached a tipping point in the number of cases that we were getting and the way that we were doing things. And we kind of just all thought, like, hey, there's got to be a better way to go about this mm -hmm. such that we don't have to increase the number of people in the lab. Like, let's see what we can do to actually tweak our laboratory process to make it more efficient. And so it was the right time for us to make this leap. And I think that's important for every lab to evaluate on their own and figure out, like, is this something that's right for them? So where would you say some of the more important uh, issues were? I mean, you're doing the entire range, it sounds like, of work. 
all the way from extraction and quantification all the way through to analysis and, and uh, data review and case review. So, uh, you know, were there particular points in the process that you examined more closely or was this more of a systems view? Well, I'd say within the scope of this particular presentation that we're giving tomorrow, we were really focused on our clients that send, for the most part, sexual assault kits. And there's a lot of labs in the country that are concerned with how they can process these sexual assault kits faster because it's really time consuming on the front end part. When you're doing an evaluation of a sexual assault kit, the upfront screening of the kit is called serological testing. The work that goes into that is very labor intensive. It's a, a laboratory analyst having to sit at the bench and evaluating um, many, many samples and making some decisions. There's lots of go, no go points. Um, and so it's a really labor intensive process that requires a lot of review. And so there's been a lot of work published and um, some guidelines from SWIGDAM have come out about ways to make that process more efficient. And essentially that was the approach that we took is kind of sidestepping past that serological screening, just cutting all the samples in the kit and going straight to DNA and see what we get at the quantitation step. And at the quantitation step, what you get is a really good idea of the amount of male DNA mm -hmm. in those samples. And that's, of course, really important for the most part when you're looking at sexual assault kits. And so um, by being more clever about how we're looking at the samples, we've been able to save ourselves a considerable amount of analyst hands-on time on the front end. Yeah, so I mean, we've been discussing this uh, on some of these uh, other, uh, in some other podcasts and other deliverables from FTCOE for the last six months or so, and or even year, because a lot of people feel like the directed DNA approach is the right way to go. Some of the serological testing was, in some respects, not accurate enough to really be used as a screening, and so you know, uh, uh, we also work, of course, with the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. And, you know, a lot of the recommendation is just you should go direct to DNA with everything because otherwise you're, you're probably going to be rejecting samples where the serological testing isn't as good as what the DNA testing is. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think one of the concerns with, like you mentioned, with the serological testing that's traditionally done on these sexual assault kit specimen is um, there's a, a sensitivity issue there. DNA testing is so sensitive these days that the sensitivity of, of those tests are outweighing or exceeding what was traditionally used for, you know, the acid phosphatase assay and serological screening and, you know, the P30 test and, and all that. I think it is a really much more quantitative and definitive way to determine the best, most probative samples that could go forward for a case mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Uh, now, one of the other issues, though, here is how to do appropriate extraction and quantification, because in some respects you are coming at it from a different perspective and trying to understand how to how to start with going to direct to DNA can be a challenge as well. Uh, what kind of tools do you all use for extraction and quantification? And is that part of what you've been doing in the automation side? It is, yeah. So they really go hand in hand. Um, so what we're doing is a, a full extraction of every sample in the kit um, and taking that through quantitation. So it would get processed just like any other any other sample. Um, so if I, you know, got a reference sample or gun swab, I would cut it, extract it, quant amp CE. And these samples are getting treated exactly the same way. So they're getting a full extraction going through the whole process and then everything gets quantified. Yeah. Do you all have any data with respect to uh, how that works in terms of how often you're getting a male fraction and, and, you know, some metrics that show kind of where the efficiency gains are from even just going through that level? Well, I think, I don't know that we've looked at it to that level of detail. We haven't, we've had this male screening, um, this direct-to-DNA approach online for about a year. Yep. Does that sound right? Yep. 
I don't know that we've actually racked in stock the data to look at it, but I do know that what we were seeing a lot before, and again, I can't speak to any numbers specifically, but we were seeing a lot of single source profiles coming back to the victim on intimate swabs from the victim. And so of course that's not necessarily informative results. And so what we're seeing now is the samples that are going forward to DNA based on this male screening approach do contain much more probative information. So in other words, we're able to really identify the best samples in the kit Um, and only take those forward through amplification, which I think is important because from a reagent standpoint, amplification is the most expensive part of the process because those kits are a little pricey. Um, So if we can stop those samples that aren't going to give us as much probative information after quantitation before amplification, that's an important point for conserving resources. So yeah, so you're talking about basically looking for Y chromosome using Y filer or... How is that working? Yeah, so the the quantification kit that we use tests for the total amount of human DNA in the sample as well as the amount of male DNA in the Mm -hmm. sample. And so what we get for our quantification results is three numbers that we really care about. We get the total amount of human DNA, the amount of male DNA, and then what's called a mixture index or what is the ratio of that male to human DNA. Because of course any DNA that's not male, you can assume it's female, right? And so if we have a female victim and a male suspect, you would like to take a sample for that has a very high amount of male DNA or a very low mixture index. Do those kits actually give information with respect to if there's uh, multiple male contributors? How does that generally work with those kits? The quantification kit that we use, and actually I'm trying to think if I know of any, um, the quantification step doesn't really give any kind of information about the number of male contributors, Mm -hmm. but there's some autosomal amplification kits out there that have Y chromosome markers. And so you can look at those and see, oh, well, if there's two different alleles calling at the Y indel or DYS391, um, two different DNA locations as test for, then you can infer that there's at least two males. That's all very interesting. I, I probably got into <laughs> And I love that stuff. I That's really good. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, just for our listeners' benefit, let's take a step back and maybe you all can give it like an overall framing because this is really about using automation more broadly, right? Yeah. Trying to use, use automation to make the entire process more efficient. So if, uh, so can, can you all kind of give a framework around the entirety of what you're doing in that regard for our listeners? I think one of the things that, that's important to bring up at this step is Jamie particularly did some early work with a different quant kit and trying to skip the uh, full extraction because we can do a snippet of the sample and, and do a quick and dirty extraction and get the answer more quickly. And when Jamie looked at those results, they were really no better, if I recall correctly, than the traditional screening manual methods. Yeah, we saw some limitations on the lower end of the sensitivity spectrum. Um, which is, again, kind of what we had pinpointed as a concern in the traditional serological screening. So we were able to determine that doing this full extraction that I spoke about earlier, in our hands at least, gave us more robust results on that lower end. So when we got to that point, it was a pretty clear realization that, okay, well, we want to do full extractions. It's the right thing for the sample. It's the right thing for the case. It's the most probative thing we can do. And if things are going to go forward to the CE, then you've already got the extract. You don't have to go back and do that full extraction. So we save a little time there. So it became obvious that, okay, our rate limiting step here is really the extraction. And although we have some amazing analysts that work pretty quickly, automation is, is definitely the way to help address that because you're doing so many more extractions than you, you would be if you were doing just the manual screening, that you have to address that, or we determined we had to address that with automation, and that was a big step in in making the leap. Yeah, and and this is, again, I'd I'd say that this is generally perspective a lot of folks have found. It's like, we'd love to go to direct-to-DNA, 
But if we can't automate extraction, it's almost it, it's almost prohibitive. Yeah, it you truly oh, absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think when we realized that the direct to DNA is what we want to do, like Leslie said, that was when we really decided, like, okay, we got to get serious about getting some robots mm-hmm. in our lab because um, otherwise, just the sheer volume of work, the burden is too much for the analyst to take on. So how do you how do you buy a robot for this purpose? Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, I need a robot, you know, and and it is 2019. But still, I mean, how do you buy a robot? What do you? I mean, what were the considerations that you all had in terms of understanding what was going to be relevant and how you were going to even put it in your laboratory so that it made sense, even from a space and personnel perspective and training and that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, and I think step one is figuring out what do you have, where where what's your starting point. And we were lucky enough to have six Kaya cubes, um, mm-hmm. so we weren't doing everything manually. But we also, in props, go out to our Kaya and HID representatives who really sat down with us and looked at our process and that put forward some suggestions with their quant kit and with some automation suggestions that, again, weren't going to break the bank. So I'm not a DNA analyst. Tell me what a Kaya cube is. It is a robot that can help you with a portion of the extraction process. So somebody okay. feeds the, the chi cube, puts the reagents in, the samples in, and they do their thing. Okay. How many samples does a chi cube do at once? Not very many. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And there are obviously other things out there that do gads and gads of samples at once, but the chi cubes do 12 or 11 in a blank. So that pretty low numbers. But when you have six of them, you can feed them and nurture them, and and you can get through a lot more samples than if you were doing just things manually. Mm -hmm. So you had six of those on board already. We did. And and they, they work in an isolated way. You can't like you know group them so that you're actually getting more more value by doing all of them all at once or something like that. There still is a process for working with each one individually. What is the improvement over doing a Kaya cube? How can you how can you do better than what a Kaya cube offers? Well, you can you can work smarter in a couple of different ways. So we again we were talking about the factors of production. One of the things we looked at is our methods. And again, going to the the male screening instead of the the manual method was a big improvement. But another there were still the method improvements that we needed to make and did make, such as early on, and, and Jamie, you can speak to this better than I can, we only had certain capabilities that the Kai cubes could do, not because of their limitations, but because we did not have the protocols and the validations performed that we could use them more intelligently. One of the more time-consuming parts of processing <laughs> a differential extraction, so a sample that you believe may contain semen and other DNA, you have to do what's called a differential extraction. So basically you're going to separate out those sperm cells from everything else in the sample. Um, You have to do what are called sperm pellet washes. And those can be really time consuming and really repetitive. And they can be really labor intensive if you do them by hand. And a great feature of the Kai cubes is that you're able to automate that. Um, And so with those six Kai cubes that we previously had, we validated a sperm wash protocol for them to take that responsibility from the analyst and pass it on um, to the robots. So that was a, a really great step forward for us and saved a lot of hands-on time for our analysts. So if you're doing a dozen samples, how long does it take to do a cycle of extractions with the Kaya Cube? So the initial step will be about two hours long, and that's fixed. That's called the lysis step. And then we'll do the sperm pellet washes. I believe that takes about an hour and a half. Um, and then the final part will be the purification, and that takes about 15, 20 minutes. 
Okay, so in a normal eight-hour workday, you might be able to do two cycles of a Kaya cube, or is that too ambitious? Are you because the because of the setup issues? Are you able to do multiple cycles in a workday for a Kaya? You cube? are, yeah. And again, this kind of boils down to how efficient your analysts just work by nature. Um, mm-hmm. Some some people are you know just real rock stars in the lab, and some people work at a little bit slower pace. So there is some there's still some human factors involved in this, but for the most part, we've found that our analysts are able to get through two cycles per day. Okay. And that's part of kind of how you're thinking through the efficiency aspect of it too. Is the lab set up so that it makes it easier to do multiple cycles or, you know, do you try to stagger them or kind of how do you do workflow to try to take advantage of all this, I guess, is the real question. The answer early on was no, it was not very efficient. Even though we had six Kai cubes, they were in three separate rooms. So there was a lot of wandering around, going back and forth between things. We also realized that we didn't have redundancy in equipment. So our, our equipment was part of the problem. Uh, we had to either share or make sure that you planned well with other analysts on using other equipment like thermal mixers or sets of pipettes. So we were able to move all of the Kaya cubes. We uh, enhanced our automation by additional robotics so that, again, would take after the Kaya cube step forward would help automate those things. And now they're all in one room, and the workflow is is much improved because there's there are consumables right at the point of use, which is a lot better than having to go back and forth down the hallway to grab additional stuff when you need it. And all of the like-minded things, all the extraction-related robots are in the same room so that all of that can occur concurrently. And obviously, we bought more thermal mixers and other equipment to make sure that we had enough so that we weren't losing time with the sharing aspect of having to wait for each other. I see. So what are the other robots, uh, things that work directly with the Kaya cubes? Are they... Things where the analyst needs to basically pull material off of the Kaya cube and put it onto the other system. Yeah, it's sort of a serial thing. I'll let you talk through that. Yeah, it is. So after that sperm pellet wash protocol gets done on the Kaya cube, the samples can then move over in a stepwise fashion to another set of robotics that we have for the purification step. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are our easy one robots. So it is a stepwise process, and there's some you know analyst intervention needed at each step. But by and large, overall, the the amount of hands-on time that each analyst is required to put in to process these samples is is much less now that we have the robots. I have another question about this because there's a general issue within the forensic science community. A lot of people doing validation methodologies in all the disciplines, but it's really hard to share validation methodologies. Is this something that you all had to do from scratch, and is there a way that people can kind of take a look at what you did for validation and learn from it? Well, one of the interesting things about being a vendor lab is that we get to come up with some good ideas and be like, hey, we think this would be really great. But if none of our clients think it's a great idea, then, well, good for us. We have a validation that we didn't ever really get to use. I think that's one of the kind of unique challenges and also like an exciting part about being a vendor lab is you get to have your hands in so many different things. Like, so we have, you know, specific workflows and, you know, amplification kits and all of that validated for a myriad of clients. And so we get to really experience a lot of different things that are going on in the community as they happen just because of the nature of the work that we do. Interesting. Yeah. So after this extraction step where we've used all the Kaya cubes and the easy ones, the next thing to do is to quantify all the samples. And that can be a really cumbersome process again, because lots of hands-on time, lots of opening and closing tubes. Um, And so we invested in a Kaya Agility to own that process for us, which is really great. So the Kai Agility is able to do an automated setup of all of our quantification plates. 
And then any samples that move forward for amplification, it can also set up the amplification plates. So those were two really time-consuming processes that we were previously doing manually that have been handed over to a robot and um, frees up our analysts to do other things. So that's been a really great addition to the laboratory. It's my favorite one for sure. And it does the dilutions for you, which it is does, lovely. Yeah. Okay. Can't say it enough. Okay, that's cool. So tell me about the Chi Agility in terms of its throughput. So you have six Chi cubes creating 72 samples every few hours. Is the Chi, How does the Chi Agility, because it takes some time, obviously, to do some of that work in terms of quantification, amplification, and dilution. Uh, how does the workflow work across all of that? So the approach that we've found that works best in our laboratory is to get all the extractions done. You know, depending upon how many samples we're working with in that batch, maybe it takes a week, maybe it takes a week and a half. And then get all of our input files for the Chi Agility lined up and then just quant all day long um, and just like load it up one after another, after another, after another. And we found that we can be really efficient that way if you just focus on one task all day long. Um, and so the, the Chi Agility is capable of quantifying, I think, 72 samples at a time. Mm-hmm. That is 12 times 6, you know. <laughs> um, it's almost like they thought about that. I know. It's so clever. Um, I yeah. will say that the number of, of robots that we added to our fleet was very thoughtful. And again, that was with heavy input from our Kaijin representatives. Okay, you have six cubes. Great. You probably need two easy ones because those are 17-minute runs super fast. So you don't need a Kaya cube to have its own easy one. You can have right. that a different ratio. And then we just have the one Kai agility. And that seems to be working pretty well for our workflow. Interesting. Yeah, so far, it's been great. So after the, the quantification step and everything's gone through the Chi Agility, we compile all of the quantification data for every case. And that's when we sort and look at these human values and male values and mixture index values and determine what are the best samples that could go forward for DNA testing in that case. Um, and so depending upon client requirements, maybe every single sample that meets our validated thresholds go forward. Or maybe they are interested in only sending the best two forward in the first round of testing, and we can catch the other ones in supplemental testing if we need to. So that's where we can kind of get creative again in cost savings depending upon, you know, client budget and demands. That is a step where two analysts need to review that data and decide, like, what our recommendations are for going forward. And you're generally batching this by customer, I'm assuming. So it sounds like you could do 100 to 150 a day using the Kaya cubes, and that sort of then is your rate limiter a little bit to some extent. And so you're able to do maybe 500 to six, 700 a week, you know, in terms of actual throughput. And so is it you have a particular set of work oriented around that. So you might have like a thousand kits that are coming in from Alabama or wherever it is. And that's kind of a batch that you're looking at in terms of how we you definitely work take a, a batch approach. Yeah. So we'll have whatever our fixed number of cases is per the contract coming in, you know, on a regular schedule. And then we know, OK, all those cases are going to get processed through the laboratory together. And they just move through the laboratory as a cohort in that batch format. I mean, we found that that works really well for us. Sure. Now, of course, one of the things that is a drawback here is that in some cases, the kits are going to have more difficult samples, right? I mean, that's really where some of the robotics can be a little challenging. If you have something that's kind of on the edge a little bit, you know, maybe the male fraction is a little smaller, maybe you have some kind of uh, interference, chemical or otherwise, you know, multiple contributors and that kind of thing. Does, do the robot robotic systems really hold up well uh, for some of the more difficult samples? Well, I think that actually speaks more towards like the chemistry, the extraction and amplification chemistry and how robust they are with respect to handling inhibitors and degraded samples. Yeah, I don't think that the, the data quality would be 
as far as like what the, the sample truly is, like degradation, inhibition, whatever is inherent to that particular sample, I don't think that would be exacerbated in any way through the use of automation. It kind of just is what it is, and your extraction, quant, and amp chemistry are going to handle it however they're going to handle it, regardless if you're doing it manually or with a robot. But yeah. there are some chemistries that are associated with certain robots. For instance, the, oh, the yeah. cartridge-based system with the easy ones, I understand that they do a, a pretty good job of, of a cleanup for the purification step. Yeah, that's true. So the, the purification methodology that we're using on the easy ones is something that you can't do manually. So that's a good point. Okay, so it really comes down to, like on the amplification, your validated method is 28 cycles or whatever it's going to be, and it doesn't really matter whether it's a robot or not. What you're saying is the chemistry is the chemistry. That's right, yeah. So what you, what you have now is hopefully a re reasonably clean set of amplified DNA that is, is now ready for getting a little bit of CE going. Is That's that right. Yeah, mm -hmm. we've, we've reached almost the end of the process, yeah. And so um, we do capillary electrophoresis just like everybody else. Sure. And I see, I see that one of the notes here is that you're using StarMix to, to deal with the mixtures. You're all doing some analytical work as well on some of the data here. Is that right? We are. We have um, StarMix validated for use with Global Filer, and we are very close on having it ready for uh, 24plex as well. Okay. What about body fluid identification? How does that fit into this overall method and to determine what's going on? So if that's an important requirement for the client or a sticking point for them, the way that we approach processing these kits, again, it's driven by the client, but for the most part, what we're seeing is that the client will request that a small portion of the swabs from the sexual assault kit are retained, either for future DNA testing or, if necessary, to go back and do you know any kind of traditional serological screening. I guess one thing I should have mentioned when we were talking about that differential wash protocol on the Kaya cubes is that one option with that particular method on the robot is that you can have it stop at a certain point and you can prepare a sperm search slide. So if it's important to actually confirm the visual presence of sperm, there's an opportunity to do that in spite of the fact that you've automated everything. You know, on the on the outset, I was mentioning that I was really pleased that you were a PMP and that you knew how to scrum and things of that nature, uh, Leslie. And so the, the question in my mind really is, from a project management or program management kind of perspective, I mean, how do you view the overall lessons learned with respect to how you all deployed these robots and how you all deal with your operations from day to day? Well, we took a, a hard look at you know, step one, again, is looking, what do you have? What are your facility limitations? Where could you possibly grow? If that's an area you think would be helpful, look at your limitations with respect to equipment, with respect to the methods that you currently have, and then talk to people, what's out there? What things might work for you? Again, we, we dabbled some in our lab to see what could work and found some things that didn't work as well and decided not to go with that. So we actually have a validated method that we'll never use because it didn't give us results that we had high confidence in the quality of it. So step one is start with what you have, realizing that you're going to have limitations, either your budget, which who's not going to have a limitation there, your space, maybe you have what you have, and that's no more. Then you try looking, what can you reconfigure that space to look and, and make things more intelligently, again, to try to keep like things close together so that you don't have a bunch of wandering around and wasted effort. Yeah. You all have made a decision to go all in on Kyogen, that's for sure. And uh, and that's been that's worked out for you because they have the three different kinds of robotic systems that really worked well together and that made sense from your perspective. What was the kind of time frame under which you uh, deployed this? Did you was there a lot of training work involved here? Was there a lot of I know you mentioned the validation works uh, work that was involved. Kind of what would, what was the timeline like? 
Once we decided to pull the trigger, things happened pretty quickly. I believe we took two months for the validations. And granted, there were many things that we validated together. There was another AMP kit we were validating. There were the, the Easy One. There was the Chi Agility. There were the new protocols in the Chi Cubes. All of that's got to be validated. And again, some of those things you can marry together because you can't do a quant without an AMP and vice versa. Sure. Um, so it probably took two months for just the lab work and getting the reports done. And then there was probably four days of training here and there on, on the different pieces, and we did it in stages. And then really writing our internal SOPs and getting that the flow down and ironing out the quant piece. We're very fortunate at Signature Science to have a great group of statisticians and data science people that are, I won't say at our disposal because they're <laughs> not always there when we need them because they have their own project work. Obviously, they have you know their own contracts that they're working on outside of the forensic world. But they have been a great resource for us because you've got this quant data. That's fantastic. If you've ever tried to deal with a, an Excel file, that's now you've got to sort it and you want to make sure that you have the quant things in order and I mean, it's it's kind of a nightmare if you don't have some automation in that front with the data sorting and, and manipulation piece and making it so that it's readable and logical and it sorts it how you need it to. So we're fortunate to lean on those guys for a lot of help in that respect. So do you feel confident with respect to the validations that occur here? Are these Obviously, it takes time. Every week of that validation work is week that you all aren't able to do the work, the, the operations. But beyond that, you know, there was also, as you're saying, kind of making everybody happy, like all the different customers that you all have happy. I mean, one of the things I have here is just like, do we expect too much custom work in forensic science? Are we, maybe we should be doing a little bit more of standardization of methods and, and, and that kind of thing. And validation is a good example of that. If everybody is validating against some common ideas, it certainly helps. Was Were there a lot of hurdles with respect to the validation in that regard? Well, I mean, this was certainly not our first rodeo when it came to validations. We'd, we'd done quite a few validations leading up to this. And so I think we had a good idea about what we were getting ourselves into. And I mean, of course, there's, you know, little hiccups that happen in any validation, right? Yeah. Um, but you, I think at the end of the day, you just do your best and you um, take a look at your data, what you get at the end, and then just understand the limitations of your method. And so I'm very pleased with how it turned out. It's in retrospect now, like a year in this was definitely the right thing for us to do. This has been a real game changer in our lab. Not only are we able to get through more samples, I think overall, like the analysts are really happy with the efficiency that we're realizing because it's fun to be able to, you know, get to the data workup part and look at your data and see what kind of conclusions you can draw. And, you know, not to say that it's not fun to be in the lab, but one's a little <laughs> bit more rewarding than the other sometimes. So, um, yeah, I think overall, it's, it, it was, like I said, I think it was the right the right time for us to make this move. And I'm really happy with the end result. I think it was really great. Yeah. So do you all have any bottom line information in terms of the uh, improvements in efficiency? Yeah, we've calculated where we saved about 40% uh, in the time that it takes to process a kit. Mm -hmm. Now that's talking about the swabs in a kit. All bets are off if they're bedding, clothing, underwear that need to be done by the traditional method, that's still going to be as slow as it ever was and is still an important part. But as far as how we deal with those pieces, um, we process the kit with the swabs first. And then if there's not anything probative or we need to go back and do a supplemental based on the client's direction, then we'll pull out the additional items and, and do a supplemental testing that way and, and have another report. So that's still, that's still a slow piece, but 
you, you're able to knock out so many of the cases because you find probative results in, in some of those swabs that you, you don't have to do so much of the laborious stuff. Uh, do you all have anything more you'd like to share with the audience? I did want to say one more thing. Sure. Because automation, you kind of think, oh, now we've got one person, Mary Jo Smithers is going to man the kayak cube, and she's going to do that day in and day out. For what it's worth, I think it's important to note, because it was important for our laboratory, that we don't operate that way. I will give you credit that that is probably the most efficient way to do it, but that's not how we operate it, because I think it's so valuable for the analyst as a human being, as a scientist, to be able to go through the whole process, including the reporting and the testimony and and talking to the attorneys and the prosecution and defense. And our analyst, each to a person, does that because I I need them to feel fulfilled in their job and and to not just push a button in in a robot. So automation, yep, we're all for it. But the human factor, you can never emphasize that too much. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I I think this is an example. I know we all like, okay, I'm not going to be automated out of a job, right? And I think that's a reasonable concern that people have in their lives, of course. But there are two other considerations here. One is those folks are now able to use their skill set in a much broader way. They're not having to sit there and do the, you know, rote work that frankly, the robot can just do without it being such a, such a burden and, and do these higher-level tasks. And the other thing is, is they're doing more valuable work. You know, to the extent that your company is successful and, and you're able to kind of compensate them and bring them on, on, the automation is making them more valuable employees than they would have been otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And any good PMP will look at risk mitigation. And one of the risks that we have is what if all of our robots die all on the same day? So we mm-hmm. have to have our analysts have the capability of manually doing all of these processes, every one of them. And uh, that is not likely to happen. It is a low risk, but that, that's something you think about. So we having everybody cross-trained to do everything, both manually and automated, is, is something that we focus on. Yeah, yeah, and get that Kaijin surface contract, you know, very well defined <laughs> as well. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thank you so much for being on, on Just Science today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And thank you all for listening at home. We appreciate, or on the car, or wherever it is that you happen to listen to Just Science. Please share the information about Just Science and all the other information that you can get from the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence with your friends and colleagues, and tell them about the uh, free resources available to them to improve forensic science practice. And uh, thank you for listening. In the next episode... Just Science interviews Molly Hall about improving the sexual assault kit testing workflow by utilizing a direct-to-DNA approach. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.